Come on back together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please grab a Bible from the back. Ooh. Come on back together. Those red Bibles in the back, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that's yours to keep from Jacob's Well. We would love for you to have that. It would be our privilege to supply for you the Word of God in your home. Come on back. Perkins, I'm watching you. Come on back. Um, we are in the middle of the book of Ephesians. It's a series that we're going through called Life in Christ, Christ in Life. And in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul spends the first half of the book talking about the life that we have in Jesus Christ. And then the second half, he explores what it means to bring Jesus Christ into all of life. How do we now live as those who are loved by God? The first two weeks, we looked at the Trinitarian love of God, the Father who loved us from the beginning of the world, and Jesus who accomplished that love for us, and then the Holy Spirit that applies that love to our lives. And then we've looked at the union we have with Jesus Christ and all the blessings that come with that union. And then last week, we saw Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, for the Christians in Ephesus, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, both in their head, but also in their hearts, to experience the hope of God, to experience the love of God, and to experience the power of God in their lives. This week, we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's in page 976 of your Red Bible. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's topic changes. He goes from focusing on God and his love and his glory and his grace to us and giving an honest assessment of the human condition. You know, an honest assessment can never be undervalued or overvalued, I should say. Uh, an honest assessment is extremely important for many reasons. When I think of this, I think of the TV show American Idol. Uh, if you have not heard of American Idol, wow, um, that's amazing. But if you've not heard of the show American Idol, basically it's just a singing competition in which these people get together, they sing, uh, judges vote, the nation votes, and then at the end there's just two left and they sing and the nation votes, and then the last person standing is the American Idol. The most painful part of the process is probably the first round. And in the first round, three judges go from city to city to city to city, listening to people who are good or who think they're good at singing, right? And so with all of these episodes, you'll almost undoubtedly have a person who comes who is convinced that they are the next American idol. And they're excited, and they're glowing, and they're beaming, and then they open their mouth, and they sing like me. It's horrible. It's tone deaf. And so they're there, and they're done singing, and they're smiling. They're expecting the praises of the judges. And the judges give them an honest assessment of their singing capabilities. Sometimes, not always in love, but they'll say things like, you need to give up singing. Um, you need to move on with your life. You know, if you go down this path, you're only going to be poor the rest of your life. You need to go get a real job. 
Uh, and when I look at it, it's so painful because I think of the steps that happened before. You know, afterwards, these people almost always say, well, those judges, they don't know what they're talking about, right? But my mom and dad, who told me I was a really good singer, and my friends, they know how good of a singer I am. And I'm sitting there and thinking, if just one of their friends, if just one of their parents was not a coward and would have actually given them an honest assessment of their singing abilities, they would have saved them from national embarrassment, right? Honest assessments are hard to take. It's hard when somebody says, you're not a very good singer. But it can save you from a lot of embarrassment later, right? Well, today we're looking at an honest assessment of humanity from God. And it might be difficult to hear, even painful, but it is extremely profitable because it saves us from something far worse than national embarrassment. And so let's look in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to spend probably three weeks on Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, because Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is some of the best, uh, con most concise uh, capturing of Christianity. If you were to ask me what are 10 verses I should memorize, I would probably tell you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so I want to take our time going through this, but I also like to challenge some of you. Maybe over the course of these three weeks, which will actually be four because I'll be out when we have our baby, maybe take time to memorize these 10 verses over this month and have them in mind because they are extremely helpful verses for a lot of different reasons. They give us an honest assessment of ourself. They tell us about who God is, but then also tell us what the Christian life is to be like. And so I'd encourage you to study them, maybe memorize them, and uh, we'll study them together. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to read the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. God, this is a text that might hit a little too close to home, God, that is a little bit offensive to our pride, a lot offensive to our pride. God, pray that you would apply your holy word to our lives, that we would be transformed even by the good news in this difficult passage. We love you and we pray that you would do this today. In Christ's name, amen. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the honest assessment of God, his honest assessment of humanity, looking at our condition. We're also going to look at how did we come to that condition, what was the cause of it, and then finally what is the consequence of that condition. So let's first look at our condition. Now as we look at this, I think it's helpful to understand there are, there are basically three major views about people, about our souls. Uh, the first is that we are good people. 
that we're all basically God's little angels walking around. He's happy to come with us to have tea with us. Excuse me, to have tea with us. We we walk away and we live our lives, but we're basically these good little angels walking around, and our hearts are very good, and God is happy with us. That's one belief. Another belief is that we're not we're we're good, but we're sick. Uh, we're spiritually unwell, that there's something wrong with humanity, but because there is good deep down inside, we can break out of this sickness if we just make the right choices, if we just try a little bit harder. And so these are two of the most prevalent views of humanity. One of the major problems with it, though, is history. History would say something far different than that. You know, if we are good or if we are just sick, then you would think that humanity would have evolved and there would at least be one country in the world that could live in harmony. At least one country in the world that would not need laws, in which the people's hearts would follow what is right and what is true. But it doesn't exist. And so we haven't evolved in goodness. If anything, we have gotten worse. It has been said by many historians that the 20th century is the bloodiest century ever. You think of people like Hitler and Stalin. You think of things like Iraq and Iran or Vietnam. And you see this course of evil progressing and getting maybe possibly worse. Or they have bigger uh, toys to do harm with. You look even in our own lives with divorce and betrayal and the way that we hurt one another. And so it doesn't seem like either of these two conditions could be right and true. But there is a third assessment of our condition. And you will not hear this anyplace else other than the church. You will not hear this any other place except churches that teach the word of God. And here's what the third assessment is. 2.1, Ephesians 2.1, look with me. It says, and you were dead. You were dead. And so some would say we are good. Some would say we are sick. The Bible says you were dead. Not physically, spiritually. You were dead. You were not in a relationship with God. And apart from God, there is no life. And so you were dead in your sin, and you were unable to do anything in worship to God. You were unable to do anything to glorify God because you did not know him. You did not pursue him. You did not love him. You were a spiritual corpse. I've been to a couple of funerals, not a whole lot, but I'm always amazed at the job that the mortician does with the body. Uh, they will put a nice suit on them. They will put makeup on them. They'll do other things, which I probably don't wish to care to know, to make this person look like they are alive. And yet never at a funeral have I ever seen a person in a casket get up and say, that's it, I'm done, I want to be alive. That dead thing, I'm done with it. Dead people do not do that. Maybe you were at a funeral that did that. That's amazing, but I, I've never heard of one in which a dead person says, now I want to be alive. And what Paul does is he's using this physical illustration to point to a spiritual reality that we are dead in our sins, that our condition is a spiritual death. 
Maybe you're here today and you are checking out Christianity. You're here because something is missing in your life. There is a void in your heart. And what I would attest to is that the thing that is missing is life. The thing that is missing is God. Because there is a far difference between breathing and living. And life only comes with God. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 22, 32. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so many of you might be breathing, but not living if you do not know the one who gives life. Those of you that are here that do trust in Christ, who have understood and received this life, do you remember what it was like to be just breathing, to be a walking corpse spiritually? Because this is what Paul is doing here. He's reminding the Ephesian Christians what it was like, what their condition was before God intervened in their life. And he's doing it that they would cherish the love of God now. And so we see that our condition, apart from God, is spiritual death. It goes on to talk about the cause of this condition. Read with me in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so while this world would hold forth this view that all we need to do is look down in our hearts to make everything right, to make everything better, to solve the world's problems. Paul says it is because of your heart that the world is broken. And so your heart is not the solution. Your heart is the problem because out of your heart comes all your actions. It comes your sin. It comes your longings. It comes your desires. And that brings death into our life. And as we own this, as we understand that it is within us that this wickedness comes, that death comes. Paul shares with us some powerful influences in our life. Verse 2, he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so Paul is talking about an era. He's saying, when you follow the ways of this world, their longings, their desires, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, when you follow those things, you're following the flesh. You're following your sinful nature. This doesn't cause you to sin. The world doesn't cause you to sin, but it allows you to flourish. It blazes the path for you. It's kind of like a fish in the ocean swimming around trying to stay dry. You are immersed in the world, and it affects you because the world is rebelling against God. You look at it whenever you drive down the street and you see billboards, or you turn on the TV, or you look at movies, you see a culture that is constantly promoting things that are against the holiness of God. It's all around. He goes on to continue in verse 2. He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who could be the prince of the power of the air? Well, we know from other passages that Satan is called the prince of demons, that Satan has control over 
the world. You remember, I believe it's in Mark chapter 4, when, uh, when Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And one of the temptations, Satan says, look at all the cities, look at all the kingdoms. These all can be yours if you bow down and serve me. That was a real and legitimate promise from Satan that he had dominion over the world. And so for a time, Satan rules over the world. Again, you see it in the things that you see on TV, the things that you see on billboards, the things you see all around us, that Satan is guiding and directing our sin, allowing it. Guide and shape and direct that stone to get it to the target. What Paul is saying here is that by our own sin, by our own transgression, by our own heart, we're moving forward into sin. And what Satan in the world is doing is they are guiding and directing us. They're making this path for our hearts to explore our sin, to dive into it. And so we see that the cause of our condition is our own sin. He goes on in verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, he's saying, your flesh does this. Your body does this. It craves to fulfill its sinful desires. And Satan and the world help blaze the path so that you can fester in it. So we see that our condition is death. The cause of our condition is sin. And finally, Paul talks about the consequence of our condition. And so, if so far you thought, man, this sermon is really kind of a downer, it's kind of um, saddening, it gets worse. Verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so God is so holy, God is so perfect, God is so pure, God loves righteousness so much that he has to punish sin. He has to punish what we have done wrong. You know, many people would say, boy, that just doesn't seem like God is very fair, that God is very loving, but it is exactly because God is fair that he has to punish our sin. It is exactly because of our sin that he has to pour out his wrath upon us. If you read the Old Testament and you see what happened when God pours out his wrath, it is horrific. It wipes out cities. It wipes out nations. And this is what God says is for those who are dead in their sin. Our sin deserves the punishment of God. We know this in our heart. We know there are consequences for our sin. And yet, like a law drawn to a flame, we continue to the path of destruction. You know, in our, uh, in our membership vows, we have five vows. We'll have membership class coming up again sometime soon. But in our membership class, the first vow that we go over, the first vow that they take is this. Do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? Justly deserving his wrath? Justly deserving hell? And so you can't be a member of Jacob's Well. You can't be on leadership at Jacob's Well. You can't be a pastor at Jacob's Well unless you believe and understand that on your own doing, 
deserve the wrath of God. So let's summarize what we've seen so far. We are spiritually dead. That is our condition, that we have no spiritual life because we're not connected to God, that the reason for our spiritual death is because we have lost and we have rebelled against God with the aid of Satan and the world. Our heart has run, run away from him. And because of our sinfulness, we, are, we have earned God's wrath. And so when we look at this, we might wonder, what is the point of this? What is the point of these three verses that seem so depressing? What are the point of these three verses? And it is because Paul is going to interweave hope into these verses. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was, um, when I graduated from high school, I went on to college at the University of Missouri, and my mom said to me, Dan, you should go and see about getting extended test time for your test, because when I was in junior high and elementary school, I got extended test time and it helped me with the grades. But in high school, I didn't need it. And so I thought, you know, Mom, you don't know what you're talking about, which is almost always wrong. She always knows what she's talking about. But she said, go get extended test time. I'm like, no, I don't need it. So first semester at Missouri uh, was studying engineering, and I studied hard. I mean, I worked really hard, got very little sleep, plugged all my time into studying and to trying to get good grades, and finally, the assessment came at the end of the semester, the report card. We opened it up. I was excited to see how my hard work might have paid off. And I opened it up, and I had a 1.4. Don't laugh. That's funny. I had a 1.4, and I'm sitting there thinking, how could this be? There must be some mistake. There was no mistake. A 1.4. Finally. I came to the end of myself. I said, you know what, I cannot do this the way I've been doing it. I've been trying so hard, and it's not working. I came to the end of my rope, and I said, all right, I'll ask for help. Went back, asked for help, got extended test time, got to graduate college, which was nice, <laughs> after being on academic probation. But I came to the end of myself, and when Paul lays these things out in Ephesians chapter 2, what he wants is for you to come to the end of yourself. Some of you are running on this performance treadmill, convinced that God's love for you is based on how good you are. And you just have to run faster, you have to run harder, you have to run longer, but Paul says no. With everything that you are doing, with everything you are trying to do, you are just storing up God's wrath more and more for you. It's not working. You need to come to the end of your rope. You need to give up on yourself and give in to God and trust in God. Some of the sweetest two words in the whole Bible, and I wasn't going to say it, I wasn't going to give it away, but Ephesians 2, verse 4, sweetest two words. After studying all that we've done wrong, the punishment for our sin is this, but God, but God. God, there is great hope and great joy, but it is not in you, it is not in your heart, it is in God who accomplishes salvation for us. You see, one of the wonderful things about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is there is actually a great hope woven into it in this way that it is written to the Christians in the past tense. It is a thing of the past for them. Look with me, verse 1. You were dead. Verse 2, you once walked 
following the course of this world. Verse 3, we all once lived in the passage of our flesh. Verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath. It's all in the past for the Ephesians. You see, when Christ came, when Christ came and went to the cross, something amazing happened. Although we have lived and walked a path of a simple life, Jesus walked a path of a sinless life. Although we were enslaved to our sin and the world and Satan, Jesus conquered the world. He conquered Satan. And although you and I rightly and justly deserve the wrath of God at the cross for all who trusted him, Jesus bore our wrath. That we are no longer children of wrath, but children of the living God, children of love, children of grace, children of mercy. That's why the honest assessment is so important because it shows you the glory that God has brought you through and to, that you would come to the end of your ropes, that you would quit trying to earn God's love, and that you would trust Christ has earned it on your behalf. Because Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is a thing of the past for Christians, the opposite is true of Christians now, those who trust in Christ. And so we are no longer dead, but we are alive. That we are no longer slaves to the world and Satan and flesh, but we are free in Christ. And we are no longer objects of wrath, but objects of God's riches and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 brings us really good news. You are much worse than you ever thought you were. And the reason why this is so good is because we have a God who is much greater than the death of our sin. Let's pray. Lord God, as we dive into this passage and think through it all, God, pray that we would own it. Pray that we would know this is us apart from you, God. That we have all pursued sin. That we have all been dead in our sin and in our transgression. But God, but you intervene to pour out your love and grace and mercy upon us, God. I'm so excited to go on in this passage and explore more and more of your grace towards us, Lord. But I pray that this week that we would be convinced of our sin, God. If there's anyone here who does not trust in you, God, I pray that they would come to the end of their rope. I pray that they would step off their performance treadmill and that they would trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone, who came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, that we could no longer be dead but alive in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.